0: it. <laughs> I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on the Behavioral Health Services for American Indians and Alaskan Natives. This is based on SAMHSA Tip 61, that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Treatment Improvement Protocol 60. So if you go to SAMHSA online, you can actually download the whole PDF to this for free and read it from STEM to Stern if you want to, but I'm going to hit the highlights in this presentation. What I want to cover today is to help um, you increase your understanding of American Indian and Alaskan Native behavioral health issues, the importance of cultural awareness, cultural identity, and specific knowledge when working with clients from diverse American Indian, and Alaskan Native community, the role of Native culture in health beliefs, help-seeking behavior, and healing practices, prevention and treatment interventions based on culturally adapted evidence-based practices. There's a really good one for motivational interviewing that I just love, and methods for achieving program-level cultural responsiveness, such as incorporating American Indian and Alaskan Native beliefs and heritage in program design, environment, and staff development. All right. So let's just start out with some factoids. Did you know that still 22% of American Indians and Alaskan natives live on reservations and 6% live in urban areas did you know that there are more than 200 tribes in alaska so if we are just kind of lumping all alaskan natives in as one group that's like lumping all um, american indians in as one group you are going to be so far off the mark because they have different cultural heritages they have potentially different cultural beliefs. The term Eskimo is considered derogatory. So it's a a word we want to really remove from our... vocabulary. Health solutions when working with, um, American Indians and Alaskan natives often come from within the community using local models. And we're going to talk about why this is so important to us to know, um, in in order to engage and assist people in achieving their highest level of behavioral health. 25% of Alaska, American Indians and Alaskan Natives live in poverty in comparison with 13% of the general population. Let that sink in for a second. One in four American Indians and Alaskan Natives live in poverty. Fewer than 50% of American Indians and Alaskan Native women who experience violence ever report it. And of those, only 10 to 40% of those cases are ever prosecuted. And some of that disparity in prosecution depends on whether the violence in the report occurred on a reservation versus an urban area Um, but it's still important to recognize that means so 50% get uh, reported and only 10% of those get prosecuted you know that's that's not good just in so many ways, education has been found to protect against substance abuse, depression, suicidality, and other behavioral health problems for American Indians and Alaskan natives, as well as for other populations. But they're less likely than the general population to graduate. And part of that is because the American educational system is actually not culturally responsive to their needs and again we're going to talk about that more as we get down to the presentation. American Indians and Alaskan natives typically define family as extending beyond the nuclear unit. When we are doing our assessment, when we are talking about family involvement, we do want to consider and ask them, who do you consider your fa-? just because I have to put this out there just because somebody is Identifies as Alaskan Native or American Indian doesn't necessarily mean they are fully enculturated into that culture. So we need to be sure to know that, you know, okay, they may have one or more of these beliefs, but it's important to ask people what their beliefs are instead of assuming we know and trying to fit them into a category. About half of American Indian and Alaskan Native households include members of the extended family, and one quarter even include people who are not directly related. Again, we need to ask them, what is your definition of family? When I ask you about your family. Who do you think of? And it doesn't necessarily mean blood relatives. About 30% of American Indian and Alaskan Native families are headed by single mothers, and grandparents also often raise children. And this is something we want to consider when we're talking about creating a recovery-oriented system of care. If 30% 30% of our patients are single mothers. What unique needs do they have in order to be able to actively and fully participate in treatment? If grandparents are raising children, what unique needs might they have? And that's partly going to depend on where you're at. If you're in the middle of Nashville or New York City, they're going to have different needs regardless of, um, a lot of other things Then. If you took those same people, you plucked them out of there and you put them in the middle of rural Oklahoma. So we do need to pay attention to the fact that needs and services are not only culturally dependent based on ethnicity, but they're also culturally dependent based on your geographic location. Not all native cultures are the same. As I said earlier, similarities may exist, but each nation may have its own beliefs and traditions. And this is where we can really learn from the people whom we serve. And it's important, I guess I'm going to get ahead of myself, it's really important that we reach out to that community ahead of time, that we connect with that community, that we show that we're interested in learning about them and partnering with them instead of waiting until they come to us or even assuming that they're going to come to us uh, for help It's important for us to reach out to the elders of the communities and ask in what ways can we be of service instead of telling them here are all the services we offer. We need to work on a part. American Indians and Alaskan Natives are less likely to drink than white Americans. However, those who do drink are more likely to binge drink and to have a higher rate of past year alcohol use disorder than other racial and ethnic groups. Just something to keep in mind when you're doing your screening, when you're identifying services that may be needed in your area. Um, It is important to be aware that binge drinking may be an issue. American Indians and Alaskan Natives experience anxiety disorders at a higher rate than other Americans. Okay, so this should be a clue here about the types of services which may be needed. And, you know, so we can start thinking about services to address anxiety issues. Well, first we've got to look and I always go back to Bronfenbrenner's model, socioecological model. We've got to look at what's causing anxiety. What is causing the anxiety for this population? We also, again with Bronfenbrenner's model, we have to look at their immediate environment, which is often their family or their tribe or their local community and ask what strength does that community bring? What resources does that community have? And in what ways does that community discuss, believe, address mental health issues? Native youth have a much higher suicide rate than youth or adults of other races, more than double than that for the U.S. population. Now, you're Think about having much higher rates of anxiety disorder, having more likelihood of binge drinking when they drink, and also higher suicide rates. You know, there is a potential for early intervention here. Suicide and suicide attempts among young men ages 15 to 24 accounted for nearly 40% of all suicide deaths among natives. That is a startling number. We want to, number one, be more aware of that. If you are working with American Indians or Alaskan Natives, we want to be aware that this is a really high risk age group. And then again, we want to look at why the suicide attempts or suicidal behavior is communicating a message. It's telling us that. The situation was untenable. Pain was too great. The sense of disempowerment was overwhelming and there was, the person felt like there was no hope. Okay, so what's causing that? Is it school? Is it employability? Is it, you know, socioeconomic status? Is it racial, racial discrimination? What is going on in your particular corner of the universe? Now, there may be some meta-concepts that... Impact you know people all all across the country, all across the world, but there are also likely some concepts that are more specific to your particular area that are contributing to those things. And how do we find out what that is? The answer is not guess. The answer is involve the population served, get them on. boards or committees that are able to communicate what their needs are, what their presenting use are, what issues are causing them distress, and then from there we can start thinking about, okay, what kinds of community-based and systemic interventions and prevention tools can we put in place? When we get to schooling, I have a whole soapbox I'm going to go off go, go off on. Likely reasons for today's high rates of substance abuse, suicide, and domestic bu- abuse among American Indians and Alaskan Natives are that their communities are exposed to a greater degree to the same risk factors that are predictors of problems for everyone. So they have greater experiences, greater numbers of people in poverty. Greater numbers of people who are unemployed, greater numbers of people who've experienced trauma, including historical trauma, and a loss of cultural traditions. The things that may help bind them together, that may help give them direction or the ability to find meaning in life, in events, may not be there anymore because it is very, they're living in a fragmented society in which they're having to interface with the general American culture and, you know, their beliefs, their traditions are not even spoken of, let alone represented. Maintaining ties to one's culture can help to prevent and treat substance use and mental disorders. A lot of times they find that people who have ties to a culture, you know, even if they are not wanting to embrace American Indian or Alaskan native culture if they embrace a culture that can help help them create a system of meaning it often helps them deal with some of the anxiety and depression that may be prompting substance use and mental disorders. Among many Native, and just before I go to the next one, it is important for us not to force this on clients. Some clients are not wanting to embrace their cultural heritage. So we want to ask them, what culture you identify most with? Very important that we don't have them feel like we are forcing in a direction. We want to empower our clients and our consumers and the communities in which we work to do what feels right for them and their growth and their well-being. Among many Native Americans, substance use and mental disorders are not defined as diseases or character flaws. Really important to note, uh, which is good. Uh, They are seen as a symptom of an imbalance in the individual's relationship with the world. That's an important differentiation. They are seen as a symptom imbalance of an individual's relationship with the world. So if the person feels at odds with their community, at odds with their world, if they're having difficulty making sense of what's going on, they may feel out of control. They may feel powerless, hopeless, and helpless. So by helping them create a relationship with their world as they define it, it is theoretically going to help them. We want to help them promote harmony in their life. One of the causes of imbalances with the world, especially this country, stems from a widespread abuses and injustices experienced by American Indians and Alaskan natives. They lost their communities and it's kind of ironic, or I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, that I'm presenting this two days before the 4th of July. But they lost their communities when explorers came in and kicked them out. Um, they lost their lives in wars, in fights. They lost their freedom. A lot of times they were put on, on reservations or jailed, or the children were taken away, ripped away from their parents and sent to American boarding school. They lost their land. They lost their sense of self determination. They lost, uh, traditional cultural and religious practices because there was systemic fragmentation of the community, and one might say that possibly the underlying thought was to weaken the community and make it more vulnerable to, um, enculturation and, and try to get them to become more, quote, Americanized. I don't know. I don't know what the people were thinking back there. Practicing many of their cultural traditions was actually illegal from 1878 until 1978. So, I think, well, I don't know about that. Uh, A lot of people who are in this class right now were alive. I know I was alive during that part of that period when it was illegal for American Indians and Alaskan Natives to practice many of their cultural traditions. Again, let that sink in for a second. If you practice Catholicism, Christianity, or whatever you practice, or Buddhism, or whatever it is, you probably have some. Traditions and practices. I mean, think about Christmas. Think about Hanukkah. Those are cultural traditions. What if somebody said, "Oh, it, it's illegal to celebrate that"? any oh my gosh, how how would people react to that? And you know, during during this time, eighteen seventy eight to nineteen seventy eight, the. American Indians and Alaskan Natives, unfortunately, were were largely outnumbered and outgunned, so to speak, Um, so they had less ability to stand up for themselves, which means, you know, a lot of times they were practicing, you know, in secret, but there are a lot of things that got lost because they weren't able to openly celebrate. They lost their native languages. And as I said, a lot of times children were ripped from their families at a very young age and sent to American boarding. So these children grew up in environments in which their primary attachment figure was not there. We took them away from their primary attachment figure before that relationship developed. And think about the impact that has on psychosocial development for anybody if they are not able to connect with their primary attachment figure. You know, there's lots of issues of abandonment, steam and anger, emotional dysregulation. So we're they created, in a sense, entire generation of people who grew up, who we actually basically caused in some ways to have mental health issues. And then those people ended up as adults having children and having difficulty forming that primary attachment relationship because they never learned how to. So then the, and generation after generation after generation, we've got people who are growing up and that cycle's not getting broken. Um, We're not removing children from their families anymore, but some of the damage that was done back in... 1878 or before, um, hasn't been completely undone. Historical trauma has been defined as the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding across generations, including the lifespan, which emanates from massive group trauma. It's critical to incorporate the role of historical trauma in assessments, in developing treatment plans, and in implementing healing strategies. So this is kind of an interesting thing to think about right now, but let's just, focus on, um, American Indians and Alaskan Natives. When we are working with people who are, you know, 20 something and they belong to this culture, one of the things we have to think about when we're doing our assessment is what kinds of messages did they get from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa about American, about the world, the traumas those people experience often caused them to feel very abused, very mistreated, um, and, and rightly so, and encouraged them be, I guess encouraged is the wrong word, but there became something of a generalization. So, you know, all people are this way or the society in general is this way. So messages that youth today are getting are still being influenced by messages of their ancestors who were, you know treated very, very violently and poorly. Historical trauma may be different from other trauma in that the distress resulting from the trauma is collective rather than individual. And the cause of the trauma comes from people outside of the community affected by it. So with historical trauma, a lot of times we see communities bonding together to try to protect themselves and seeing those that are outside of the community. As them, the bad one. So it becomes an us versus them sort of mindset. Unfortunately, in a lot of treatment centers and in a lot of clinics, most of the clinicians represent the them part. And it's important for us to recognize what's Um, messages or what things they are interpreting just from their interaction with us. Trauma can affect future generations physically by raising the risk of certain diseases. If you grew up in a household in which there were adverse childhood experiences, that means a caregiver primarily a caregiver who had a mental health or a substance use issue or was not able to form that primary attachment, you know, a lot of times that results in an adverse childhood experience. When you grow up in that environment, then your HPA axis typically, not always, uh, is hyperactive and can become dysregulated, which increases stress, which increases stress-related diseases, hypertension, um... Obesity, d- diabetes, and autoimmune issues. The list goes on. Socially, trauma affects future generations by increasing child abuse and domestic violence. They have found that people who grow are under a lot of stress, for whatever reason, tend to have more difficulty regulating their emotions. Therefore, may be more likely to be abusive or violent in order to protect themselves. And I'm, you know, this is not blaming the victim. This is recognizing that there is a strong correlation, not causation, that increased stress results in increased aggression, just the way it is. Um, not in everybody. Uh, you know, I want to be clear about that. Psychologically, trauma can cause depression, PTSD, anxiety, and spiritually trauma can affect future generations by just creating an environment in which they feel disempowered and hopeless. Historical trauma is transmitted across generations, often, as I said earlier, through its effects on parenting. In 1999, Braveheart wrote an article that suggested that trauma experienced by parents can disrupt traditional parenting practices. You know, if you're traumatized, if you are hypervigilant, have PTSD stuff going on, then... It may be more difficult to be emotionally and physically available for your children. It can increase substance abuse, mental health, and physical health issues. It can affect trust and intimacy and the ability to form a healthy bond with one's children. And it can cause secondary traumatization when parents tell stories of historical events or of their own experience. So think again about, you know, little Johnny who's nine years old and he goes to stay with great-grandma and great-grandma is telling him about things that happened when, when she was young and it's pretty horrific. Think about how that impacts this little nine-year-old child. Children also witness and to some extent internalize their parents' reactions in times of stress when their parents' responses to traumatic situations are triggered. So if something reminds the parents of a traumatic situation and they, their HPA axis, their threat response system goes off, they go into fight or flee mode. Children see that. They may not understand why the parent is in fight or flee mode, but they see that and they go, okay, something is really bad here. There's something dangerous. I need to be afraid, which was their anxiety. The concept of historical trauma is intended to help the provider find ways of discussing current issues and emotional or behavioral problems in a context that is not stigmatizing. We want to help them see what's going on for them. And how their behavior makes sense, if you will, in terms of their experience, in terms of what they know, in terms of what they've been raised with and their environment and the messages that they've gotten for generations. And it presents trauma as a collective experience and thus one that communities can work together to overcome. And that is a huge issue when you're working with the Alaskan Native and American Indian communities that we reach out and say, how can we facilitate the recovery from trauma for your community. Now we're not going to be able to do it for, you know, every, every tribe everywhere. Let's talk about this community right now. How can we facilitate that? And it's going to be largely reliant upon that community going, okay, let me tell you. So when we look at the cycle of historical trauma, you know, obviously here in the center cycle of historical trauma, if there's a history of trauma and historical trauma that leads to traumatic stress reactions, including grief and other strong emotional, physical reaction. When you hear about what happened to great grandma, you know, think about how that makes you feel. And often it makes, it makes a lot of people feel angry and, um, grief stricken and powerless and angry again, increased risk of substance abuse and dependence increased vulnerability of suicidality and mental disorders. When people are struggling with seemingly constant reminders of traumatic stress and grief and, you know, dysphoric emotions, they may try to self-medicate with substances. They may experience mental health and, and mood disorders. Okay. So we're moving there. That moves up to an increased risk of experiencing other traumas such as accidents, violence, and physical and sexual abuse. Unfortunately, they found that as people's mental health status goes down, their risk of trauma goes up. In the initial meeting, as a provider, it's important for us to promote, support, house, and help facilitate the development of prevention activities in Native communities. So we need to get out there. And number one, ask the community what they want and what they need and how best to present it. We don't want to start making assumptions. If we can facilitate housing those activities at our facility, well, great. But the community may prefer to house those um, activities, maybe at a clubhouse or a community center. We want to ask them, where will you feel most comfortable when meeting anybody Um, but when meeting patients, especially give your name and job title, explain briefly something about yourself, what you are doing and why let's just start out with full transparency. Take your cue from clients when it comes to offering a handshake and expect that it may be very light as a sign of politeness and respect. So if they feel comfortable shaking your hand, don't expect a firm grip and don't give a firm grip, you know, be. Take your cue from the client. Keep your eye contact brief until you observe the habits of your client. And remember that confidentiality is huge. During the assessment, explore and assess cultural identity or identity. Most of us belong to multiple different cultures. And it's important to assess which parts of which cultures that people identify with that add together to create their personal identity. Obtain the client's perspectives first. What did they think caused the problem and what prompted their decision to enter treatment? Was it a loved one? Was it a personal decision? What was going on? What thoughts do they have about how to return to a more balanced state? And harmony and balance are two big words that you often will want to use when working with Alaskan, uh, natives and American Indians. But again, take your cue from them. If they're not using these words, then those words might not have meaning to them. But in general, you know, returning to a more balanced state is, uh, our cue words. Ask what clients already know about their problem and what they've tried. So, you know standard solution-focused stuff. How do they see the problem and how does it affect different aspects of their lives? What do they think they need to heal? They may believe that there are things that they need to do with their family, with elders, with their higher powers, whatever that is. We need to ask them, what do you think is going to help you? And what does successful healing look like? And that's really important for us to have the client define what an adequate outcome looks like. Work with the client from that point to identify treatment goals that are important to them and incorporate cultural activities if they want to and or Alaskan Native and American Indian healers in treatment. Again, we don't want to force this on clients if they're like, no, I, I don't want to do that okay, that's cool. Let's talk about what you do want. But if they want to bring in you know, native healers or elders or family members to treatment, it's important for us to embrace that and figure out how to make it work because that is what is meaningful to them. Creating culturally responsive services requires the participation of the native community, including formal and informal leaders, councils, clients, potential clients, and clients family we want to let everybody have a voice avoiding community participation represents an example of paternalism in which providers assume they inherently know what's best for the program client staff and community really want to stay away from that because that does set that barrier there of us versus them American Indian and Alaskan native beliefs revolve around the value of connectedness and the importance of relationships if we as providers don't build relationships or demonstrate interest in their community the native community may be less accepting of the services offered so it's important that we get involved with the community um you know if there are boards or um, committees that we can sit on if there are um, festivals that we can make an appearance at, that is important. And, you know, some people get a little nervous about the whole dual relationship thing. And, you know, I get it, but going to a culture, a community fair is not a dual relationship. You know, you're not bartering with your client or thing. So it is important to, from a, from a organizational standpoint, to encourage staff to interact, to participate in activities within the native community. Culturally responsive services will likely provide clients with a greater sense of safety and support, the belief that the culture is essential to healing. Healing and treatment approaches need to be inclusive of all aspects of life when you're working with American Indians and Alaskan natives, incorporating the spiritual, emotional, physical, social, behavioral, and cognitive dynamics. It's all about balance. It's all about harmony. It's all about energy flow. Healing can come from reconnecting strengths inherent in traditional teachings, practices, and beliefs, and beginning to walk in balance. There's that word again, balance. The division between physical and behavioral health is not one that is recognized in Alaskan Native and American Indian culture. One aspect of health is believed to affect the other. So it's, you know, they're inextricably intertwined. A health problem that affects one person will have effects on a family, a community, and a tribe. And it's important to, you know, really embrace that. We talk about it a lot, even in traditional Western approaches, but with American Indian and Alaskan Native cultures, they truly believe and, and they see it that, you know, if I'm depressed or if I'm abusing substances... I can see how that's affecting my family and how I'm affecting my behavior is affecting my community, my tribe, um, through my behavior, as well as through how I'm impacting my family. Prevention and treatment are seen as part of the same process, which I think is really cool. Illness is the reflection of imbalance or disharmony. Healing, um, the community can positively affect individual health And that process of healing may need to occur at the community level to be effective for the individual. So sometimes instead of starting with the person, we need to back up and we need to start with the macro system and start with the community and figure out what's going on here that might be contributing, like poverty and problems in school, delinquency, those sorts. What things in the community may be out of balance that are contributing to this person's sense of unsafeness, and anxiety. An illness may occur because an individual or relative has broken some cultural or natural law recently, in the past, or even in a previous generation. Because of this, a person may be held at least in part responsible for developing an illness and the individual who has the illness. So if somebody in your, you know, your great grandma or great grandpa did something that broke a cultural or natural law. The that person may be held responsible in part for the creation of your illness because they see punishment of future generations as a consequence of breaking these laws. An illness may also be personified in the sense that it has a spirit and that spirit may need to be addressed as part of the healing. This is one of those things we really want to talk with the client about. And a lot of times um, elders can be very helpful at the personification aspect traditional practices often increase social support thereby improving health and healing rituals improve participants coping abilities and quality of life traditional healers often have stories that guide individuals on how to handle various problems and when you're working with the uh, elders of some of these communities, some of the the lessons they have, some of the stories are not to be written down. They're not to be taught. So the elders are the ones that do have to teach those and to pass them down. Traditional healing helps individuals transcend their experiences by identifying the meaning and purpose of those experiences within the context of the community, including the environment. Some traditional healing rituals alter participants' consciousness, which in turn can produce a spiritual transformation that affects overall health. Now, anything that affects the participant's consciousness obviously uh, carries with it some risks. And elders who do perform these ceremonies are trained rigorously by prior elders on how to do it. So it's not something, definitely, definitely not something that you just want to randomly say, oh, hey, let's go try this particular practice. No, 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 no. You're, you're setting yourself up for doing harm to the patient. Traditional healing practices, offering tobacco with one's prayers, often done in a group burning herbs or smudging for purification, participating in a talking circle where an object is passed, allowing everyone to express feelings or thoughts. Now we actually use that in a lot of our groups in order to help maintain a little bit of, um, Decorum, I guess. Giving herbal medicines. Obviously, we aren't prescribers, so that's not something we are going to do, but that is a traditional healing practice. Performing a sweat lodge or spirit lodge to experience purification, prayer, and healing and improve emotional and physical well-being. Sweat lodges, if not done well, if not done correctly, can be very dangerous. Performing tribal dances, chanting and singing in groups, which can go on for days. Okay, just... Sit with that for a second. Can go on for days. So that's important to, you know, focus on who's going to be involved in it and, and the planning for it if that's going to be an intervention. Creating medicine bags that hold specific meanings for the owner. Engaging in other traditional ways such as carving or tanning hides. Sometimes just reconnecting with their roots and doing things that their ancestors did can help them reconnect with their spirit and with their community. And using humor to address and survive many difficult situations. Sometimes clients will use humor in session because it's one of their coping skills. We don't want to discourage that. Alaskan natives and American Indians believe that they are only one part of creation, dependent on nature and meant to live in harmony with All things, the grass, the sky, the animals, other people, everything. And when that becomes imbalanced, it starts causing them frustration, anxiety, and a host of other issues. Native Americans believe in the importance of balance and harmony internally for the individual. So we have that yin and yang, you know, we have some happy, some sad, you know, socially among people, we want balance and harmony. We don't want to live in an environment that is not harmonious. And naturally in relationships with animals and the rest of creation, recognizing how we impact them, such as deforestation, and how they impact us, um, such as making a smile or providing food in the case of, you know, eggs or something. Community norms and values play an important role in all aspects of life for American Indians and Native Americans, including treatment for and recovery from different mental health issues. Involving family and community in the development of treatment programs is important in providing effective services for most people. It's important to ask about if uh, their families and their willingness to be involved in treatment since harmony in the environment, harmony in the community and with family and balance is so important. If the person is living in a situation that is imbalanced, that is dysfunctional, then they're going to have a hard time with the recovery process. I mean, totally makes sense. Um, And, and it's important to ask because a lot of times in the American Indian and Alaskan native culture, they are, the families actually are willing to participate, which is somewhat different than what we experience a lot of times with, um, other cultures. It is important to remember that shame is a really strong factor preventing service access. People may feel like they are experiencing a punishment for something they did wrong and they're supposed to bear this bear this weight. They may be ashamed of what's going on or of the imbalance even though it's not seen as 79.2% of American Indians and Alaskan natives ages 12 to 17 in A survey in 2014, which is a little old, but they stated that religious beliefs are an important part of their lives and believed their beliefs shaped decisions. That's huge. That's super important because when you look at the percentage of other cultures that are embracing their spiritual and religious beliefs, it's much lower. Uh, So it is important to recognize that spirituality is huge for this particular population most of the time. Having a stronger commitment to traditional spirituality is a protective factor against suicide and some mental and substance disorders. If they've got that commitment to balance, if they recognize the impact of their actions on everything else, then it may protect against some of these other issues because they recognize what's going to happen and the impact that might have on their family and their community if they commit suicide or if they abuse substance. Many American Indians and Alaskan natives are Christians, but incorporate aspects of native beliefs, which may affect their view of the world and their place in it. The Navajo concept of hozo means peace, balance, beauty, and harmony. To be in hozo is to be at one with and part of the world around you. When two people are parting. They may say, may you walk about according to Hoso. In part, it's a reminder to go about life deliberately. Alaskan native values. And, you know, these these are not anything that should su- surprise most of us. Show respect to others because each person has a special gift. Share what you have because giving makes you richer. And if you're doing this in group, you know, one of the fun things that you can do is talk about That So the first one, show respect to others because each person has a special gift. So let's go around the room and talk about, you know, identify one of your group mates and tell me what is a special gift that that person has that they bring to the world. Sharing what you have, giving makes you richer. Talking about what does that mean? How can giving something away make you richer? Know who you are because you're a reflection on your family. So we want to talk about how do you impact Your family, you know, when people see you, what do they think of? And, you know, how does that reflect on your family? Does it pull them up? Does it make them happy? Does it make them proud? Does it make them anxious or worried or scared? What's going on? Accept what life brings with you because you cannot control many things. And this is a group you can do a whole group on this. Let's identify what's like, what life has brought you this week and which of those things were in your control and which of those things were out of your have patience because some things cannot be rushed live carefully because what you do will often come back to you and sometimes when I'm doing this in group I'll have people talk give examples of how when they did something it came back to them and you know hopefully it's a good thing they did something and you know karma came back to them wonderfully But it goes both ways. Take care of other people because you can't live without them. Honor your elders because they show you the way in life. Pray for guidance because many things are not known. And the word pray bothers some people. um, But it's important to recognize that that just means to meditate on or think about, you know, what's going on in order to get a better vision of the bigger picture, in order to see more broadly what's going on. You know many things are not known so it's important for us to think carefully and act wisely and see connections because all things are related and you can talk about you know a variety of different things um one of the you you can talk about the butterfly effect one of the things i talk about is if you throw a stone into the water what happens and you know people say the water ripples well yeah that's true what else happens it goes down and pushes some of the water out of the way okay it stirs up the silt when it hits hits the bottom of the of the lake or the river or whatever so that creates a plume it often scares fish so they go away there are a lot of impacts that things have and how does that affect what's the reciprocal effect of those things traditional values include cooperation collectivism harmony modesty and humility respect for personal freedom and autonomy, trusting each person to do right and not giving advice. So that's an interesting thing there. You know, in counseling, we're taught, you know, we're really not supposed to give advice. We're supposed to help people, lead people to their own conclusions. And it's very important in the, uh, Alaskan native and American Indian cultures that we don't give advice unless it's specifically asked for. Respect tradition and elders by asking about it, by communicating with the elders and finding out, learning more about the culture and being educated prior to clients coming in. That shows that we respect them. We respect their culture. And then by involving the client and asking how much or how little of tradition, they want involved in their treatment process, also, number one, empowers them. It also shows respect. There's an emphasis on oral tradition, and we need to uh, work to meet the needs of everybody in the culture, not necessarily accumulate wealth. There's a respect for generosity and a notion that all nature is alive and worthy of respect. And finally, the final value that uh, is super important is a value- Present, they value present focused mindfulness and patience. being aware, taking a moment to stop and think instead of being on autopilot. Autopilot really sets the scene for disharmony because when we're on autopilot, we're just doing, we're not recognizing our impact on anything else. And a lot of times we're not noticing things that may be impacting us. So motivational interviewing, actually there is a booklet that has been modified as the Native American Motivational Interviewing Guide. And It adapts motivational interviewing to be appropriate to using with that population. When doing motivational interviewing, you can have clients create personal stories for each stage of change. Remembering pre-contemplation, not ready to do it yet, contemplation, preparation, have them create a story about somebody in each phase of change the trainer's guide to motivational interviewing enhancing motivation for change a learner's manual is another great one and the book historical trauma and unresolved grief by Braveheart yet another one that if you want to dive deeper you can get some more ideas here mindfulness based interventions that might go over well um, include using walking meditation and exploring how to use mindfulness and traditional practice <coughs> <laughs> Acceptance and commitment therapy uses mindfulness, value-based decision making and personal uh, purposeful behavior. So it is a great place to start because um, he talks a lot in in the ACT manuals about mindfulness and getting off of autopilot and deciding how to create the rich and meaningful life as you define it and then using your energy purposefully, to work towards that rich and meaningful life as you define it. So ACT fits really well, um, with this particular culture. Cognitive behavioral therapy intervention should assume the role of consultant and resource provider and avoid being too directive. Two more resources here, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy with American Indians by McDonald and Gonzalez, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Native American Youth with PTSD Symptoms by Goodkind, Lanou, and Milford. Those are, again, more resources if this is a population you work with and you need more in-depth information. Historical trauma, including the loss of culture, lies at the heart of substance use and mental illness. Behavioral health issues are seen as imbalances in the individual's relationship with the world. Healing and treatment approaches must be inclusive of all aspects of life, spiritual, emotional, physical, social, behavioral, and cognitive. And as providers, we need to understand how clients perceive their own cultural identity, and how they view the role of traditional practices in their treatment. Reconnection to American Indian and Alaskan Native communities and traditional healing practices may help individuals reclaim strengths inherent in traditional teachings, practices, and beliefs, and begin to walk in balance and harmony. Sometimes Some people are ambivalent. They're like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work, but I'll try. Other people summarily reject it. Other people think it is a great opportunity to reconnect with their past and find a different way because the way they're doing it right now is not working. Now, I did tell you that I was going to go on a soapbox about education. Um, it is important to know, and I guess I covered it in a different class that I did on, on this population, but a lot of um, Alaskan natives and American Indians are more oral um in their learning style more auditory in their learning style and the American um, educational system especially in the lower grades is largely centered around books and visual stuff so what they found is once these youth get to about sixth grade, I believe, they start having a dramatic drop in grades and an increase in delinquency and behavior problems and low self-esteem and depression and anxiety. A lot of times because these youth are struggling to learn in an environment that is not designed to teach to their learn style. So one of the things that we can do that is, you know, easier, it's not super easy, but easier, is to help identify some auditory components that can help these students learn, whether it's recording the lecture and listening to it um, or going even going online and helping them find YouTube videos that teach the same information where the person is is talking and you're not spending so much time with your nose in a book. Providers in native and non-native programs need to understand the role of tribal sovereignty and governance systems in treatment referrals, planning, and program development. So if you're working on a uh, reservation, you need to understand who can be referred where? American Indian and Alaskan Native clients and their communities must be given opportunities to offer input on the types of services they need and how they want to receive them. Do they want to receive it virtually? Do they want to receive it um, in their community of choice do they want to receive it you know at the clinic how did that what works for them culturally responsive counselors will explore how culture affects their interactions their initial and diagnostic impressions of clients and selection of healing interventions we need to reflect on how our culture impacts our interaction with the client and impacts or affects our diagnoses. So we need to make sure that we are recognizing the effect that we have on those people and that our beliefs have and our expectations or preconceived notions have on our diagnostic process. An environment that reflects American Indian and Alaskan native culture is more engaging for and shows respect to clients who identify with this culture by using native community vendors. You know, that's an easy one to do hiring a workforce that reflects local diversity, which you're supposed to do anyway, and offering professional development activities like supervision and training that highlight culturally specific American Indian and Alaskan Native client and community needs. So for your in-services, bringing people in from the community, bringing in elders who can talk about these issues is huge because we're asking, we're saying, we don't No, we are not the experts on you. (laughs) Surprise. You are the experts on you. So tell us how we can help you. There is no one right way. Providing direction on how something should be done is not comfortable or customary practice for American Indians and Alaskan natives. For them, healing is interconnected with others and comes from within, from ancestry, from stories, and from the environment. So as outsiders, you know, we can... Try to create an environment that is inclusive. We can connect with those in the community. We can connect with elders. We can learn to start establishing a bridge, if you will, in order to um, create an environment that, it, that is more effective for engagement and intervention. Everybody have an amazing weekend. And I'll stick around for a couple more minutes if you have any questions, but you know, stay safe. Have fun, and I will see you next uh, Tuesday. I always feel like wimpy when, when I say that, you know, wimpy from um, Popeye. I'll gladly see you Tuesday. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of therapy notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash